For status, I am Mira Nabulsi. Ramadan, the holy month for Muslims, which wrapped up this year in June, is a time for fasting, praying, and family gatherings. But in the Arab world, it's also a time when people feast on their favorite dramas and soap operas. Every year for Ramadan, the entertainment industry in the Arab world releases many new shows and TV dramas. And in Syria, despite the bloody conflict that began in 2011, Syrian drama continued, sometimes releasing dozens of shows a year, and perhaps only competing with Egyptian drama in popularity. So how has the ongoing conflict in Syria impacted the drama scene in that country? And how do writers and directors navigate the unstable political landscape as well as state censorship? I put these questions to Krista Salamandra. She is a professor of anthropology at Lehman College and the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. I started by asking her about what characterized Syrian drama this Ramadan. Well, this year has been a big comeback for Syria, and it's estimated there are around 28 Syrian serials being aired this Ramadan. And that, of course, depends upon what one considers a Syrian drama, because there are a lot of co-productions now. And that was something that actually started before the current conflict, but has intensified with the dispersion of media makers throughout the Arab world. So you're seeing a lot of Lebanese and Syrian co-productions, and Syrians working in dramas that are produced outside of Syria and aired and filmed outside of Syria. So that's one big trend is is the Mm co-production. There are more of them this year. And they've become very popular, and several are now on Netflix and available with English subtitles if your listeners would like to see them. And yeah, I was going to actually ask you about this whole comeback because I read some articles in Arabic that talk about that. And I think it's interesting that perhaps this comeback is coinciding also with the renormalization, if we may call it so, of the Syrian regime potentially coming back into the Arab State League, as well as, from what I understand, a change in um, the boycott that kind of was going on for many of the Arab TV stations buying Syrian drama. Is that maybe an accurate observation? I think that's part of it, but there's actually a lot of dispute about whether there actually was a boycott or not. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was never a formal boycott. Um, However, I do think that Syrian dramas have become more attractive to GCC, uh, Gulf Cooperation Council-based buyers that, that are largely located in the United Arab Emirates than they had been. And that may be linked to normalization, but there was never a formal boycott as far as my conversations with programmers Mm -hmm. in the United Arab Emirates have indicated. So I thought it might be useful for our listeners to understand a little bit more about the ecosystem of the Syrian drama, particularly how it changed after the Syrian revolution of 2011. Many Syrian artists fled the country, moved to Lebanon and Egypt, and now we're seeing many Arab mixed shows, like you were saying, mixed casts and production teams. At the same time, the production inside Syria continued, despite the very volatile political situation. Can you expand a little bit more on that? Well, it never actually stopped. It was cut in half during the most intense years of the conflict. And that means it was cut from, say, 40 or 45 to 20, 15 to 20. And several of those would always be filmed still in Damascus. There was never a complete halt of production. But many serials got produced in Lebanon, for example. And then actors and crew would travel to Lebanon and back. 
even those who were still living in Damascus would film in Lebanon. And now we're seeing Damascus again, returning as a filming site, as a location site, not so much the rest of Syria as it had been before the war, but Damascus particularly. And how did the Syrian drama change since 2011? Has the political messaging changed, in your opinion? How do we see the instability, I guess, translate into the screen? Well, I think you saw the war being dealt with gradually as the conflict evolved. At first, there was a real reluctance to kind of take it on. Then uh, drama makers got bolder, particularly those filming outside of Syria, got much clearer in their referencing and much more willing to broach, you know, sort of very heated and sensitive issues about the supporting of the opposition or the supporting of the regime and contrast between those two groups were actually featured in serials and sometimes with cross-casting because as you may know the actors in syria are really public figures they're the country they're very often the country's public intellectuals as well drama makers in general um, and actors in particular who are the face of the industry they have really run the gamut of responses to the conflict from very strong support of the opposition and condemnation of the regime and those actors are largely in exile Mm -hmm. to very very strong supporters of the regime and lots of gray areas in between much like the syrian population they're very much a microcosm and that's also true for directors and screenwriters although most screenwriters are oppositional um so what we saw were both serials in which oppositional and pro-regime figures were brought together to act their own positions and also cross-casting, which Mm -hmm. was very interesting Mm -hmm. and probably quite challenging for the actors themselves. And the actors having to work together on these intense filming experiences, which can run every day, all day for months. So a very, very close-knit environment. It's emotionally intense outside of conflict times. So one can only imagine how fraught a process it must have been. At the same time, uh, my sense is there hasn't been a drama series that objectively discussed the reality of the situation on the ground in Syria. And those that did were more pieces of propaganda for the regime. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think that's entirely accurate. I think Mm. that dramas do also, like their creators, run the gamut from being those that are filmed outside quite oppositional to Yes, I would, I would argue those that, that reiterate the regime's, the regime's position and defend it. It's quite interesting that many of the actors uh, or satirists that generations of Arabs grew up looking up to, like Dorid Laham or Yasser Al-Adme, remained in Syria and have supported the regime. It is, absolutely. And that's something that, you know, needs analysis, but it also is not representative of the industry as a whole, because actors are only one part of the picture. Writers are an important element as well. And if you look at the uh, screenwriters for these serials, very often they're oppositional. 
And there were at least a few dramas that also dealt with Syrians uh, as refugees. For example, I remember the show Ghadan Naltaqi, or Tomorrow We Should yeah. Meet, the yeah. translation. And it was a drama that was filmed in Lebanon and chronicled Syrian refugees uh, in Lebanon and their struggles. I believe the Syria received uh, some positive reviews. What did you think of depictions or maybe this drama or others that talked about Syrians as refugees as well? Cynically put, the refugee experience can help producers avoid actually talking about Syria, not setting a a serial in Damascus, but setting it in a refugee community does avoid some red lines. On the other hand, I think that tomorrow we'll meet again in particular with Masterful. There are others, but it was probably the serial that most directly and sensitively and objectively, to use your term, looked at the conflicts of ideological and political positions. And that was the one that featured the most striking cross-casting between an actor playing an oppositional figure whose own position is actually pro-regime and vice versa. And it was also just a very good serial because I think what a lot of what gets missing in the conversation about Syrian drama is that it's drama and that it's fiction and that drama makers see themselves as artists. And it's not just about talking politics all the time. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's, talk- it's about talking about society. Sometimes it's about making formal innovations in the form. So there's a lot going on, and Western media has a tendency to focus on, and it's understandable, uh, viewers often have a tendency to focus on the politics and the political messaging, and it's totally understandable given the funding sources and the state censorship, not just within Syria, but within the Gulf, among the Gulf channels as well. So drama producers have to deal with two sets of censors when they produce anything, and they have to please various audiences, various markets, various buyers. And I wanted us to talk about the drama, but as well maybe art or theater in Syria before 2011. In one of your articles, you talk about an outpouring of Syrian drama in the early 2000s. What do you think characterizes Syrian art or Syrian drama of that period? And perhaps as well, if you can give us an insight into what was going on politically during that time for it to be such a huge amount of production? Well, what actually happened started in the early 1990s, and you had the convergence of three factors, one of which was the rise of of pan-Arab entertainment channels, satellite channels in the Gulf, largely owned by Saudi and Emirati state and private sources. Then you had the beginnings of private production in Syria. So you had the swelling of production companies, where before this, all production had been state production. It had all been public sector production. The third thing is that you have continued censorship of other forms of art and prioritization of the market at the same time so that non-commercial art really did not provide artists, writers, filmmakers, actors, etc. with a living. And other forms of intellectual engagement, which were non-fictional, continued to be heavily censored and suppressed. Mm -hmm. So journalists, people who would ordinarily have been academics, wrote screenplays. The country's leading novelists and poets wrote screenplays. And that's something that happened earlier, but it intensified in the early 1990s when suddenly 
There were employment opportunities. And that, in the 2000s, proliferated. And when Bashar al-Assad came to power, he certainly paid lip service to supporting the industry. And lots of people, media makers and beyond, were very hopeful in that era. It was the era of the Damascus Spring. And many uh, media makers, and people forget this as well, many TV makers were involved in the Damascus Spring and were very hopeful about its reform potential. Of course, that was very quickly suppressed, Mm. but the drama industry survived it. And actually, you can still see the sort of the energy of that era in the in the dramas from the early and the comedies, the satirical comedies from the early 2000s. I was actually yeah going to say how I've always found it interesting how Syrian drama and political comedy or satire shows were able to work within the severe political restrictions of the authoritarian regime and still were able to present uh, political critique, social critique too, but I think the political is still uh, the very interesting part of this a critique that was able to speak to the Arab audience. And we've had examples of shows that continued for years and even maybe decades. How does that work? Well, there are different theories about how this works. Some people argue, Syrians and outside observers, that it's basically all the regime's doing. The regime completely controls the public sphere so that they kind of dictate when they want to float criticism, when they want to allow a certain, a certain amount of criticism in order to create a safety valve for the masses to sort of contain and, and disperse any kind of oppositional energy. And that makes a kind of sense until you look at the, the ways in which serials actually play out, particularly the comedy serials. If they go too far, they get reprimanded. They get censored. They get cut. They are not able to continue with certain storylines, with certain kinds of critiques. So if it's all orchestrated, then it's un- it would be unlikely that you would find that kind of stop and start mechanism going on. The other thing is just to mention, again, the writers and the writers very often being oppositional and very often writing from positions of exile. This is Syria drama, generally speaking. Mm. Um, and it seems it seems very unlikely that everybody would be engaging in, in this, this regime orchestrated game. So it's my position that there's been a gradual sort of I call it a movable wall of fear. There's been a gradual pushing forward um, and sometimes backlash of the the boundaries of the permissible. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, they sometimes cover corruption, nepotism, the gap in wealth, poverty, but don't necessarily point to a specific regime or a, a specific Arab leader. And I think that's why it was so spoke perhaps to like really a wide array of the Arab audience and at the same time perhaps were able to pass through the state and still make it to TV screens. Absolutely. You know, Syrian drama makers distinguish themselves from their Egyptian counterparts in many ways, but one of the things that they often talk about is the fact that they are Arab drama in a way that Egyptian is always Egyptian drama. Mm-hmm. Um, and that they may also link, you know, Syria was the, the birthplace of Arab nationalism. 
So they and that Arab nationalism always you know lived in this tension with the particular Arab nationalisms, um, and Syrian intellectuals pride themselves on being able to kind of bridge that tension and to speak to wider audiences, which is is necessary given that the Syrian market could not sustain the amount of production and it cannot employ the amount of talent that Syria has. And they really are dependent upon the Gulf market. You had mentioned Netflix earlier. How do you think that might change the game a little bit? Shows being on Netflix, that means possibly a wider, not only Arab, but international audience. Do you think that kind of helped Um, perhaps the distribution of Syrian drama, especially because you talk in your work about the unstable situation for the Syrian drama as an industry. Absolutely. Programmers in the United Arab Emirates are now talking about Netflix as a real serious game changer. It may be able to finally move Arab drama beyond the Ramadan stranglehold. I mean, Ramadan has been both a blessing and a curse. The, the broad, Ramadan is a broadcast season, has been both a blessing and a curse for drama makers because on the one hand, it's, it creates this buzz, but it also uh, means that everyone has to compete for that month. And it was really when people started watching a lot of drama on the internet, it was thought that, oh, okay, finally, finally, we're not going to, to be beholden to Ramadan anymore. We can actually have a year-long broadcast phenomenon as opposed to a month-long, having to produce everything for one month and not actually knowing when that month is going to be. It, it, it's kind of a, night, a yearly nightmare for all involved. Um, that didn't happen immediately, but I, people now think that Netflix may, may actually move our drama in, in that direction. The other thing is it is really compelling, much higher production values. Um, and it seems like the Syrians have been able to, from what I'm watching this season, have really been making strides at meeting that, meeting that challenge. And in terms of the content and the stories and the maybe values that would be offered as part of a production that maybe speaks to an international audience, what do you think uh, that might look like? Well, sadly, um, it seems that what has been picked up so far have been what the Syrians would call layer works. Mm. Their production values are very high. Um, they're well-scripted, uh, tight plot lines. There's still the 30 episodes that you know are shown on consecutive nights during Ramadan, so there's still the 30-episode structure, but they tend to be more crowd-pleasing. The critically acclaimed Syrian dramas are social realism, which are, you mentioned one prime example, which was Tomorrow We'll Meet Again. They're very culturally specific to a certain extent, but beyond this, they're really serious dramas that have niche audiences. They have intellectual audiences, but they have niche audiences. And Syria has really excelled at this kind of social realism, partly because they didn't have the infrastructure that, say, their Egyptian competitors had, so they had to film on location. They didn't have a star system, so they used very strong ensemble casts. They borrowed from other art forms because there really isn't a cinema industry to speak of. There's no commercial cinema industry. So there's a lot of crossover. People are, are doing all the, the various performing and, and media art forms. So they, they really drew on, a, on an excellent pool of talent. Same with writers. And they created this very 
serious social realist uh, genre that may not lend itself so well to a commercial outlet like Netflix. It hasn't so far. My hope is that it will. Mm. But what we've seen so far are kind of police mafia stories, sadly. And they're wonderful, but they don't represent the wide range of what the Syrians are able to produce mm. and what produce. Does that include Al Haiba? <laughs> that includes Al Haiba, which I love. I'm addicted to Al Haiba. But it doesn't look a lot like the social realism mm. that is, is like global social realism. You know, the, the concerns are class conflict, gender relations, housing crises, corruption. Very often they are set in informal settlements, shanty towns. Mm. Even though they don't attract the widest range of viewers, they have been uh, critically acclaimed. They have their viewership. They have a longer shelf life, actually, than a lot of the more crowd-pleasing dramas. People remember them and talk about them years later. The one I worked on most closely, El Intizar, is, is one of those. People now call it a classic. It didn't attract a wide viewership at first. And then they're also replayed throughout the year, and they, they can attract more viewers when they're not part of the Ramadan outpouring. Mm. This is, I guess, what happens uh, for many shows, Syrian and others. There's just this huge crowdedness, like you were saying. It's really hard to pick, but then throughout the year, people start maybe watching things that they have missed during the month of Ramadan. Exactly. Mm -hmm. exactly. And despite the vibrant uh, drama and TV scene, why haven't we seen a vibrant Syrian cinema? Uh, my sense is that now we're seeing a little bit more because we're seeing so many artists in the diaspora, uh, people who have fled the country, and we're seeing more cinema and documentary work, but it's maybe not as proliferate as the Syrian drama is. Well, I, I think the issue is one of funding. Mm. And I think we're seeing some really wonderful documentaries coming from documentary filmmakers in exile. There's a very sizable young generation producing really wonderful material. But I think that the issue is really one of lack of a market and lack of funding sources. The Syrian state has not for various reasons, some of which are obvious and some less so, has not funded, has not promoted a commercial film industry in Syria. It doesn't have the infrastructure and hasn't built the infrastructure to sustain one. Um, and, and drama has really benefited from that lack. I think now that, that there are increasing outside sources, although they, these have waned in, in, in the past year or so, outside funders, say in the UAE, who are interested in funding fictional film. Um, so we have seen a few emerge. Uh, the United Nations had a project in Lebanon, which helped even some TV makers make their first short drama films. But they, these have been very small and uh, very small and isolated efforts that haven't really translated into a trend as of yet. And I'm wondering to what extent where we see also like a completely different set of issues and topics being discussed in maybe uh, new independent film projects, because now there's a huge Syrian population throughout the world, in Europe, in the US. And I'm wondering how much will we see also very new types of uh, productions and topics? Uh, we're seeing a lot of documentary film, mm -hmm. as I mentioned. So we're really, I think it's not only the most documented conflict in history, as, as people are saying, but it may well be 
the war that has produced the most documentary film as it was happening. And the same goes for theater. There are, there are a lot of really wonderful theatrical groups in exile that have been doing some really brave, hard-hitting and poignant studies. The conflict itself of the experience of exile, of the difficulties refugees face, um, and even of the experience within Syria of imprisonment and torture. But in terms of film, we haven't seen the fictionalized version of that experience in film as of yet, or in its only beginning in drama, in TV drama. So, but I, that may well be the next, the next direction. In a Twitter exchange uh, that I had not too long ago with a couple of Syrian activists, they were saying that a documentary is produced for, Syrian documentary is produced for the international audience versus a drama is more for the Syrian and Arab audience. Do you agree with that? I think that's fair. And I think that a lot of it has to do with exhibition venues, fiction goes where where fact cannot, where factual treatments cannot. The other issue is what is, are the audiences for documentary films globally? They're not that wide. So documentary films, by and large, are not commercial ventures. And drama is. I think that explains part of it. I don't think it's merely just the proclivities of the audiences, which may be a fair point as well, but I also think it's a more complex issue about... Who is interested in what? What can pass through censors? What commercial outlets want to purchase and air? And what counts as entertainment? Because it really is an issue of apples and oranges, in a sense. And for the future, as you probably are following the situation on the ground in Syria, do you have any insight into how things could change for the art scene? I feel like in the immediate future, it's not going to be a priority. And what we will continue to see are commercial ventures. I think that Syrian drama will continue. Its future looks secure. But, you know, at, at the moment, it looks like there's a lot of supporting of the status quo mm. and mild critique. But that changes from year to year and from production to production. It's very difficult to generalize. Krista Salamandra is a professor of anthropology at Lehman College and the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. Her work explores visual, mediated, and urban culture in the air world. Her forthcoming book is titled Waiting for a Light, Syrian television drama production in the satellite era. It explores the cultural politics of contemporary fictional TV creation. You've been listening to Status Audio Magazine. The Status is produced by the Arab Studies Institute in partnership with Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, co-sponsored by George Mason University's Middle Eastern Studies Program and the American University of Beirut's Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship. Interested in pitching an interview, a program episode, or becoming a partner, Email our associate producer, Paola Messina, at paola at statushour.com To listen to more conversations, on-the-scene reports, and discussions, visit our website, statushour.com or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go. You can also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. 
Thanks for listening and for more conversations, please visit statushour.com.